In the last two weeks, we have been in one of the greatest chapters of all the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. And so you can guess that this week, that means that we will be in 2 Samuel 8. Spoiler alert, next week, 2 Samuel 9. And this is intentional, because these books were given to us by the Lord with context, with a narrative, with a story, and they build upon each other. And you really can't understand 2 Samuel 8 unless you know 2 Samuel 7. And so given that we have been over that territory, I trust that the Lord will bless us this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8, we'll be reading the entirety of this chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 8, beginning at verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hedadezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hedadezar and defeated him for Hedadezar had often been at war with Toy and Joram brought with him articles of silver of gold and of bronze these also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued from Edom Moab the Ammonites the Philistines Amalek and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. 
And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we might behold marvelous things. That we would see who you are, what you have done, and what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Bible uses many ways to communicate with us. In the last two weeks, we saw this marvelous conversation between God and David. The promises of God were spelt out and David responded in prayer. This week seems a bit more mundane. A history lesson, if you will. Lots of hard names, places we don't know. Isn't this a chapter that we should just skip over? Do we really need 2 Samuel 8? Well, as we look closer at this chapter, we see a picture of the Lord establishing His kingdom on earth. And in that, we can be encouraged that Jesus is building His kingdom in our midst. This morning, I'd like us to see three things about the kingdom. First, we'll see kingdom conquest. The conquest of David and the kingdom. Then secondly, we will see a kingdom reaction. Reaction to the establishment of the kingdom. And then finally, we will see the kingdom way. The way of the kingdom of God as set forth in the reign of David. Kingdom conquest, kingdom reaction, and kingdom way. Well, let's begin then by looking at the kingdom conquest. And we must remember as we come to this chapter that we do not come to this text in a vacuum. The Lord has made promises to David. You may remember back in chapter 7 and verse 9, the Lord promised to make for David a great name. And then in verse 11, the Lord promised that Israel will be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. Now knowing these promises of God, it should not surprise us that the next thing we see is God fulfilling His promises. And the text actually highlights this for us. Chapter 8 begins after this. It's a phrase of narrative that reminds us that this follows what we have just had. We've just received the promises of God, and now we see God at work. Now, we don't know the exact time that these events occur in, but we do know that they follow the promises of God. Isn't that often the problem for us? We have trouble waiting during the after this for God's promises to be fulfilled. We can grow impatient. 
or even doubtful about God's promises. But here, we are to see how surely God's promises are fulfilled. They are as night follows day. Now, first, David goes against the Philistines in verse 1. David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amam out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, it's easy to see why David would do this. The Philistines have been a continual threat to God's people before David's reign, before Saul's reign, even before the time of Samuel. David had defeated the Philistines once, you may recall, back in chapter 5. And now he goes to end the threat once and for all. He defeated them, the text tells us. He struck them down. That's what the word defeated really means. He struck them down. He subdued them. He humbled them, we are told. This is a theme we're going to see over and over again. Seven times in this chapter we read of David striking down his enemies. But this is actually the fulfillment of a specific prophecy or promise. You may recall back in the third chapter of 2 Samuel, when Abner was speaking to the elders and the people of Israel, in chapter 3, verse 18, he said to the people that David was to be the king because the Lord said, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A promise from God to Israel. And now here it is, coming true, live, in technicolor. It's what we can see. God is doing exactly what he said he would. Then David moves against Moab. Now here, the details can be a bit confusing, mostly because we don't have enough details of what is going on. In verse 2, we see that David strikes down or defeats Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two measures, he me two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. Now, it's confusing because Moab was an ancient enemy of Israel. They went to war against Israel. They threatened Israel. But David had Moabite blood. He was descended from Ruth the Moabitess. And earlier, you may recall, in the book of 1 Samuel, when David was on the run from Saul, he entrusted his parents to the king of Moab. But now, the scene that we see seems horrible. Why is this? Some speculate that David's parents were murdered by the Moabites, and so now David is exacting revenge. But the truth is, is that before we get our modern sensibilities offended by something like this, because after all, David never carpet-bombed a city. David never took out civilians with weapons. What we see here is that what would have been normal would have been for the victors to kill all of the prisoners or to sell all of them into slavery. So as we come to this text, we have to actually see David being merciful. He lets a third of Moab go free to go back to their homes, to go back to their land, to be subject 
but in that sense, to be free. But even more importantly, we need to view this event through the lens of God's kingdom. Because David is actually fulfilling another prophecy, an even older prophecy, in which Moab receives justice for trying to wipe out the people of God. You may remember the story of Balaam, the prophet, how the king of Moab hired Balaam to go and curse Israel so that he could wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And Balaam was unable to curse Israel. The Lord stopped him. The Lord actually rebuked him from the mouth of a donkey. And so Balaam could only bless Israel. And the king of Moab came to Balaam and he said, What are you doing? I'm paying you to curse them, not bless them. You can almost imagine he would have pulled the receipt out of his pocket and say, I want my money back. You're not doing what I've asked. And Balaam gives one final prophecy after he tells the king he can only speak what the Lord gives him. He says, I see him in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Here we have once again, God keeping his promise. Then David goes after the forces of the north in verses 3 and 5. And David defeats King Hadadezer, and he limits his ability to make war. He takes away from him his chariots and he hamstrings the horses so that they can no longer be used against them. You may ask, why did David not just simply take all the horses? Well, it's because God had written in his law that the king of Israel was not to multiply to himself horses specifically. So David is trying to protect the people of Israel. But then the Syrians are next. They come down to the aid of Hadadezer. And there, there is a major victory. 22,000 Syrians slain. This must have been a long and a significant campaign. Damascus is far to the north of Jerusalem. Why would David undertake this campaign? Well, again, it's the fulfillment of a promise. A promise made not to David nor even in the time of Balaam, but back to Abraham. When God had promised Abraham a land that would stretch as far as, verse 3, the river Euphrates. God is keeping yet another promise. Then after defeating enemies to the west, to the east, and to the north, David goes after the Edomites to the south. We know from Psalm 60 that while David was campaigning against Hadadezer and the Syrians, that the Edomites attacked him in his rear. They came against him in his flank trying to use this opportunity. But David turned and went back and defeated them. So all around him, David had victory. Now our first tendency here is to praise David as a great man of war. The text even leads us to that. David defeated this enemy. David struck down that enemy. David made a great name for himself. 
David was a mighty warrior. But we cannot forget why he was a mighty warrior. This is the same person who as a young man defeated the giant Goliath. The scripture gives us the real explanation of the cause of all of these victories. It's a refrain we see twice in verse 6 and in verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It was the gift of God. Just as God had promised to David that he would deliver him from his enemies, that he would give Israel peace, so God has done. And the interesting thing here is, is that this phrase, the Lord gave victory, could also be translated, the Lord delivered David. Even the Lord saved David. The conquest of the kingdom comes about because God brings it about. God uses his instruments. Without God, it is not possible. With God, anything is possible. It's also helpful for us to see that God's kingdom comes about through conflict. Notice that the enemies of the kingdom of God do not simply lay down their arms. David does not kill them with kindness and good manners. This is a pattern we see in the Bible. We have it in Psalm 2, where the Messiah will break them with a rod of iron, we are told. We see it in Isaiah 11. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. We even see it in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus the warrior comes with a sword out of his mouth, defeating the enemies of the kingdom of God. We need not to be surprised when we see conflict in the world. That's to be expected. Conflict precedes conquest. We should not forget the suffering Messiah like the Jews did. But don't forget the conquering Messiah either. That should bring you peace. It should bring you comfort to know who Jesus is. To know that Jesus wins. That brings us to two reactions we see to God's kingdom. The first is that of submission. We see this in verses 9 and 10. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David. So we hear about another king here, Toy of Hamath. We don't know much about him. We don't know who he is. I have to fight the instinct within me to think he's a bit of an inconsequential king, a, a, a lightweight king. After all, his name is Toy. But we hardly know anything about him. All we know is that Hadadezer was his enemy. So we can surmise that just as uh, Hadadezer was north of David and Israel, that Toy in his kingdom was north of Hadadezer. And he appreciated David's assistance here with his enemy. Now, Toy hears about what David has done. But his reaction is unique in this chapter. 
unlike the Syrians, for example, who doubled down against David, Toy comes seeking peace. He sends his son, whose name is Hedaram, we know that from the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 18, to come and ask about David's health. Now, of course, this is really just a way to get into David's good graces. He's not coming to say, David, we want to know, are you working out? Are you getting enough roughage in your diet? Are you not eating too much red meat? We don't want you to gain weight. We want to make sure that you're feeling good. That, that's not what's going on here. This is not a medical visit. No. He is coming to show that he is on the side of David and his kingdom. And what we see here then is a ruler and a nation that submits to the rule of the Lord. Hedaram is even given a new name to reflect this. He's called Joram, which means God is exalted. And they come and they lay down their arms and they seek peace with the kingdom of God and they bring tribute. This is another pattern we see in the Bible. Just as we see the pattern of conflict, we see this pattern as well. Isaiah tells us that the ends of the earth are coming to the Lord in Isaiah 45, 56, and 66. We just sang Psalm 22 in which the ends of the earth are coming to the Lord. Micah chapter 4, the nations cry out, let us go up and serve the Lord. What we have here is a king who actually takes the advice of Psalm 2. Do you remember that advice in Psalm 2? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Toy is an example to us of hope. You don't need to be crushed by the Lord and His kingdom. You don't need to continue on in a pattern of rebellion against the king. You can submit and find peace. Jesus is a mighty warrior. No one can stand against Him. But you don't have to resist. You can lay down your arms. You can stop right now. Jesus will have you. You can be a part of his kingdom. Well, there's a second reaction to the kingdom also. We see that in David himself. David could have honored himself. He could have been filled with pride. After all, he had just won great victories. It would be normal for a king to think himself invincible after that. That's usually what happens. Some kings, rather than submit to God, actually think that they are gods. We see this in the example in 1 Kings of the Assyrians and Rabshakeh, where he comes to Jerusalem and he says to Hezekiah, Your God is nothing. Your God cannot protect you against us. We conquer gods all the time. We are the powerful gods. That's normally the reaction of prideful kings. Instead, David humbles himself and he worships God. 
David's victory have brought about great success with great spoils. We see in verse 7 that gold and bronze are brought from the defeated. We see in verse 10 that Joram brings tribute to David. We see that silver and gold are brought on and on in verse 12. From Edom, from Moab, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from everywhere. 2 Chronicles 22 describes the staggering amount of wealth that comes to David. Seven million pounds of gold. Seventy-five million pounds of silver. Can you even imagine that much? And yet David dedicates it all to the Lord. That's what we see in verse 11. He dedicated it to the Lord, the silver and the gold that he dedicated from the nations he subdued. That's because David knew his victory was due to the Lord's power and blessing and not his own. He also knew that God deserved the glory, not him. And so David shows us another kingdom pattern. In the best of times, our passion should be for the Lord not for the blessings that we receive. You see, in the worst of times, when we have nothing, we can be comforted that at least we still have the Lord. But when times are good, we are tempted to forget God. We focus on the blessings that we have rather than on the one who blesses us. So what is your passion in life? What occupies your thoughts? What do you love to tell others about? Is it your success in work? How great your family is? Your grades? How you excel at sports? David shows us that our passion must be in the Lord and in worshiping Him. Not just today, not just in church, but in all of life. A final brief thing we see in the concluding verses is the kingdom way. Verses 15 through 18 conclude not only this chapter, but they conclude really a significant section of David's life. There is a very similar sort of conclusory passage in 1 Samuel 7, concluding the description of the time of Samuel. And then again in 1 Samuel 14, concluding a segment of the reign of Saul. And so here what we have is a summary of David and his early reign. There is indeed more still to come, including some problems. But for now, we get a picture of the kingdom way. David's reign is described as one of justice and righteousness. Look at verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now notice what the text does not say. It does not say that David was perfect. That that was all that he ever did, was righteous and good. It can't say that, because the only one who is perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in the future David doing plenty of things that are unjust and unrighteous. But what this text does show for us is, again, a pattern. 
The tone and the tenor of David's reign was one of doing what was just and right for all the people. The Lord wants you to see this pattern. His kingdom is one of everlasting righteousness. That's what Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9, the Messiah's reign will look like. And after all, isn't that what we long to see? When we complain about things in the world, it's because we think events or circumstances don't meet the standard that we have. And there is a standard. What is right? What is just? And here God shows us that it's not only possible to have justice and righteousness, but that He is bringing it about. And that righteousness is not merely abstract. It's not just a goal. It's not just a motivational poster on a wall. No, it has reality. You could point to specific instances. The way of the kingdom is orderly. So David put in charge of each aspect of the kingdom men to ensure that things ran well. We see this in verses 16 through 18. There is the military aspect to the kingdom committed to Joab. The civil aspect committed to Jehoshaphat and Sariah. The ecclesiastical aspect to Zadok and Ahimelech. And even the benefit and rights of foreigners are committed to Benaniah. The Cherethites and the Pelethites were foreign soldiers who came and fought for David. And David was even assuring that those who were not native to Israel were taken care of. Everything is in order. So what does that mean for you? You're not the king, but you do have a role to play in life, no matter who you are. You are a father, or a mother, or a child. You're an employer, or an employee, or a student. Perhaps you're an officer in the church. You can be an example of what Christ's kingdom looks like. A picture of righteousness and of order. Not perfect, but a better way. The best way. The way of the kingdom. Well, for some of us, history can be boring. A bunch of dates, names, and places that we don't understand. And because of that, frankly, we don't really care about much. 2 Samuel 8 gives us some history. But it's the history of the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think of it as the prequel to Jesus' glorious kingdom. And let me remind you from our text that Jesus will defeat all His and our enemies... And we do not need to do that. Let it give you hope that it is good news that every knee will bow to Jesus. And let it drive you to bow down and worship Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today, you should see Jesus' kingdom and rush in to find your place in it. All you have to do is believe. Jesus has established His kingdom as the place where sinners are forgiven, the broken are made whole, and righteousness reigns. Come now to Jesus. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. He is ready to receive you. He has a kingdom prepared for you. A kingdom of everlasting righteousness and joy. Let's pray.